Reba J Meets is brought to you with the support of Van der Sanden. Driven by innovation, sustainability and craftsmanship, Van der Sanden is Europe's largest family-owned manufacturer of facing bricks, clay pavers, eco-brick slips and facade solutions. Together we build greatness. Welcome to Reba J Meets, where we get the inside track on leading architects. I'm Eleanor Young. I'm half in, half out of number four Pancras Square in London's King's Cross. Around me there's a happy hum of people enjoying a leisurely lunch, their faces turned to the sun. Behind me, the office opens up. And above, above is a massive truss of weathered steel. The rusty roughness continues up into the exoskeleton. The weathered steel's not for show, it's holding up this building by Eric Parry Architects from the outside. A kind of heroic grid. I can't reach it, but here, here's a column. And I can feel the granular texture under my fingertips. This marrying of material and structure, often with a splash, well, more than a splash of art thrown in, has all the hallmarks of the best designs from Eric Parry Architects. They're designs that have reset London's architecture over the last 20 years, walk between Oxford Street and Piccadilly, and the streets are studded with Parry delights. And around the city of London, Parry projects are making their way at a larger scale and seem to be growing by the day with new towers and new courts on the books. They take a great deal of brain power and research these projects and the materials on them. Hours of traveling to quarries, checking and rechecking sample panels, Beyond the norm, enthusing and reassuring in equal measure to bring along planners and public as well as clients. I want to understand that obsession to explore materials and the process and how Eric Parry architects surmount the new challenges as we increasingly understand the cost of our materials in terms of embodied carbon. Now, I'm off to the studio of Eric Parry Architects on the edge of Clerkenwell to talk to founder Eric Parry and new director Lee Higson. And later, I'll be asking the practices Emily Posey about how it is to be at the coalface as a project architect. This is Reba J Meets. So can you walk into a building without touching things? I mean, it's getting hard because we need to do that with COVID, but mm. Eric, I think you... Uh... I have knuckles that are kind of, I, you know, it's not so much the ends of my fingers, but it's, it's my, my knuckles because I'm always tapping things to see whether what they appear to be is what they actually are. You want to know it's real? Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, forever, you know, kind of, uh, to some extent, touching surface, but it's, it's that sort of sense of how thick something is and how, it, you know, because stone, you know, you can tell about the, 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 the capacity of stone by, by ringing it, you know, so it's a sort of bell ringing exercise that uh, you expect a certain resonance from the material, so yeah. that, that's, my, that's my kind of predilection. So, I, I mean, I suppose my experience of your buildings is a lot through surface texture, particularly the facades. You know, I haven't been in thousands of them. I've been in tens of them. So, 
but it's not just about surface texture, is it? So I suppose it's a lot about the structure as well. You want the material to be holding up your building quite often. Um, and, and it feels really different from the kind of clip-on panels that are ubiquitous now. I mean, But why does it even matter, Lee? Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting to hear Eric's kind of knocking and tapping of, of things on buildings because, you know, I think for, for everyone, the way that they experience buildings and architecture is, is that material connection. You know, it is an op- if, if many, of the build- many of the materials we have been using over the years, be it, you know, stone, glass, steel, you know, those, those, those kind of raw elements in a way, elements of the earth, and it's kind of, it's, it's that moment that the sort of citizen gets to kind of experience those materials of the earth in a, in, in a new form, I suppose. And, you know, that's the, that's the profound bit of architecture, isn't it? And if, if it's done right, it does have an authenticity to it, and it isn't a kind of veneer, it isn't surface. It's something that works, you know, through depth and through, through its backing is as much is as important as as the finish on the outside. So I think, you know, lots of the ways in which we over the years have put buildings together, I think have an authenticity in the way that the sort of structure and the um, sort of bits that you don't see, if you like, the bits that are doing the the kind of harder work, are at one with the materials that you see and touch and feel. Do you think you've got a back catalogue favourite then, Eric? Something that really did that? Well, yeah, you know, I think that uh, undoubtedly the um, slightly, you know, the innocent approach, but actually one that that worked totally against the industry um, was Finsbury Square, where there is no steel frame, it is a load-bearing stone, it is really taken to the nth degree, working very closely um, with the engineers who would be bird at that point. So, you know, I still think that that really, uh, it's that sort of anger about seeing stone um, used as bathroom tiling and needing massive amounts of stainless steel to hold it up that seemed to me totally absurd. And actually that building has a kind of sculptural quality because of the way you can work round a corner and then no vertical joints, it's all stacked stone, uh, which has to be, you know, a, a favourite in, in, in that sense. But in the same way, the work with faience and ceramic was because, and because one wanted a building that could be levitational, like the Hoban, so that it, you know, there was a, there was a why, why not, you know, bath stone and bath. Uh, it was the garden setting and and a sort of sense of the way in which a surface could resonate with its uh, with its context that was very important there. So, again, that would be a, another you know important building in terms of its garden garden setting as opposed to its London Square setting that kind of uh, you know takes takes from the back catalogue a response to the place and the material. Uh, importance in terms of the choice and then the way that the structure and the material work together. So I, I was thinking about your projects. You have got uh, you've got private schools, you've got cultural buildings, you've got St Martin of Fields, it's obviously marvellous, but a lot of the innovation is actually on those office buildings. It's quite 
dog typology maybe because you know you're, you're looking at the interface between the city and the building but you're really spatially you're just giving floor plates is, is that why is it, is it a bit boredom is that why you're so into materials well, that's an interesting inversion. I, I, I think actually, um, the, yes, I'm very aware that it's, it's, it's kind of looked down on by the architectural fraternity and critics and not a popular building type. Um, and Ed Jones, in his, uh, in his critique of Finsbury Square, was you know, immediately referring to Alan Cahoon and crits at Princeton, at which, you know, commercial buildings were seen as 5% architecture, 95% something else, you know. And um, that seemed to me a very sad response to the, to the possibilities that these buildings uh, uh, have and the lives that are lived in them, actually. is a really significant everyday quality and loads of people going into them so that you know I think there's a huge responsibility to create a flexibility that will work over time and that other parties can get involved in in that in that that so one takes like the the, the height of a seat you know it takes the the flexible flexible floor plate as a as a kind of distinguishing mark of how a building will be able to be reused over time so those things i think are actually rather important uh, it does reduce the room for maneuver a long way uh, but no apologies so where, for that. Do, where, do, where do materials fit into that maybe well it's yeah uh, it's each of the buildings and the thicknesses and thinnesses you know and uh, uh, you know, and 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 actually, for instance, uh, again, you know, if I think of, of a project at Savile Row or a project uh, or the project at, at Finsbury Square, you know, the the depth and shadows of one and the very light shadows in the street of the other, all very important. Of course, one's squeezed in terms of the the floor plate. But what it has happened, and this was never an intention that many of those buildings, and it's just been borne out by a building at St. James Square, simple materials, great precast stone, um, you know, wildly successful, ridiculously successful commercially. That's not our uh, kind of starting point. But these buildings, I do believe, if office buildings have character, they do actually also play both to the, both to the urban context. But in, in the end, they're good for the investors because they have a product that actually people continue to want. So with Eric and Lee, we talked a lot about facades and materials, materials and structure. Now, Emily Posey. Hello. Uh, hello. Uh, you're with the practice too, and you're going to tell us a little bit more about how ethos and ideas are turned into specifications and into built form. Um, you're currently working at stage four on the technical design of, of some really hugely complex core buildings uh, off Fleet Street. Um, that's all about the nitty gritty, isn't it? Yes, yeah, definitely. It's a pretty hard stage. I would say it's probably one of the most complex stages one of my favourite stages but it's um, the one where you, you're bringing together all the concepts and all the ideas from the early stages and trying to make them into 
a reality. Well, not quite reality, because obviously we're not on site at this point, but trying to um, get all the the information together to make sure that the concept was is achievable and is doing the right thing for the space and all the, the building in general. So you're kind of still deciding on internal materials for the court, but at Fen Court uh, in the city, this kind of crazy exuberant office tower, you were... Um, you were working on the internal fit-outs. What I really want to know about is the loos. <laughs> That's something that seems to be always missed off from websites and things, the images of the toilets, isn't it? But a lot of um, energy and time goes into um, the smaller details of a project. Um, Fen Court, it was a shell and core, so we were focusing predominantly on the lift lobbies, reception areas and toilets. But what's quite special about the toilets at Fenchurch is that we tried... Um, similarly with how you do with the facades we were looking at kind of intricate details of how you've made the change from the concept to the reality so we had some quite nice um, uh, touches including kind of bespoke push plates bespoke light fittings for the vanity units and then also it's like very important to keep a good um, eye on all the materials that are going into that space and whether they're practical um, whether they're going to be robust enough and meet all the clients' needs as well as meeting the kind of conceptual um, ideas at the beginning. So uh, you had timber veneers on the doors, you had stone vanity units, is that right? Yes. Yeah, How right. did you go about investigating those materials? Um, well, in our office, uh, you might have seen as you walked through, we have rows and rows of s- samples um, and examples of materials used in previous projects, which is a really great starting point to try and kind of get the juices flowing on material choices. But then we also spend a lot of time talking to manufacturers, uh, going visiting manufactured premises, quarry visits, things like that, to try and get a really good idea of the, the look and feel of the material. So you can look on into the internet and see images of materials, but for us as a practice especially, we are really keen on seeing things in in real life. So did you did you go and see um, some of the materials for this? Yes, we did. Yeah, we did many uh, visits. So we had the kind of the key elements were the uh, stone flooring in the in the lobbies, and then in the toilets themselves, we had the the timber veneers, as you said, and the stone vanity. So we did a quarry visit up in the Lake District, and it's Burlington Stone. So we went visited there. They give you usually give you a tour of the space and then show you all their manufacturing techniques and then kind of examples of the ranges of the stone that you will re- be receiving on site. Similarly with um, the veneers and for the cubicles, we visited the Shadbolt um, workshops where they laid out all the veneer that's going to be used on the project. So you got to see every sheet of veneer. Is that miles and miles of veneer? Uh, they, it, when you see it, it comes in kind of pallet form, kind of like a layer cake um, of these but you could imagine if you're kind of setting out a row of veneers for cubicles maybe 12 17 cubicles long can't remember exactly but um you could imagine that on a floor in a large in a large kind of workshop area and just start kind of picking out ones that you're not happy with moving them around how is it going to be matched what's it going to look like where are the joints going to be um yeah fantastic and also keeping a close eye on wastage because obviously you can quite easily say no to a lots of bit of veneer but then you've got to remember that's material that's then maybe not going to be used for anything else so it's kind of keeping the right 
kind of mindset when you're picking these materials as well. So it seems a huge amount of work for a few loos. Yeah. How many loos was it? I think uh, about 170. Oh, toilets. twice a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much, Emily. So far, we've kind of been talking about materials as a kind of rather beautiful thing, an idea of something that might affect people in reality once it's there. But of course, there's the process of getting into Plately. Uh, that can be quite, quite tricky, and you're often working against the norms in the construction industry. Um, why do you decide to do it? To do in terms of the way we're putting our yeah. So give me here. an example of somewhere where you've gone. Okay, well, what that needs is this, and you know that you're mm. kind of having to, you're having to innovate, you're having to change methods, you're mm. having to go beyond what a structural engineer would normally recommend, say, um, and 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 get them on your side. I mean, it's a lot of extra work. Yeah. Well, it can come from it can come from many sources. I think um, if you look at project we have on the uh, working on at the moment the new um, the new law courts in the city of London that is has come with a very specific brief it needs uh, to deal with lots of security and and sort of bomb mitigation etc as well as dealing with 125 year minimum life design life which is you know triple what, what you normally expect of, of a building of a commercial nature so when you bring that together with an incredibly sensitive historic urban context and all that that involves in terms of um, dealing with materials and, and um, getting an appropriateness and a context in, in that place in the city, it brings together a sort of confluence of things that needs you to innovate. Um, you, there isn't, I don't, I don't know of a project that performs with a self-supporting you know, load-bearing uh, stone facade that performs in those criteria. So, you know, this by, you know, the necessity of the brief drives that sort of innovation. So for research, you can't just go to Google? It's just not there. And I think, you know, I think that's something... But So that's a particular instance where a brief drives innovation. But I think more holistically, as a practice, we do like to deal with kind of the raw elements of materials, be it stone or glass or steel, and, and the way we put them together, rather than, I think when architecture goes wrong sometimes, it's, it's putting together an assemblage of kind of products. So, you know, the architect has got nowhere to offer their influence because essentially it, it's an assemblage of pre-tested, performanced and kind of certified pieces, which which is very good for the industry and very efficient for the industry. But as a creative person, you, you're very limited in how you can use those materials. And what you tend to see in those buildings is, is kind of pattern making. Because the architect is reduced to surface, they're reduced to a kind of visual pattern making. Whereas I think when you're dealing with real bits of stone or steel or glass or what, you know, and you're putting it together in a, in a new way, you know, you, you have to go right back to those principles and, and build it up from the ground up. And you have to get quite close to the makers and to the people who are, are what subcontractors presumably to 
I mean, you're probably quite far away from that process now because you're too senior, but... Um, Not at all, no. I think it's really all about the factory visits and the kind of getting to know the supply chain, what their systems are, what, what the limitations are, the, the material, you know, some of the... If I think of some of the journeys we've gone on on Fayons, for example, um, you know, just really understanding from you know, one end of the market where it's a highly artisan piece that's all about cast ceramics and, and artisan glazes that, that sit at one end of the market versus, you know, um, something that's more production line orientated around extrusions. We've kind of, I think now over the last sort of 15 years or whatever it is working with that material, we, we've kind of spanned the whole sort of spectrum, if you like, and we understand what are the limitations and opportunities within a, within that, that sort of field? And it's only through that understanding that you can do the innovation you're talking about and, you know, put things together in a, an original way. So just just talk to me about fans, because, I mean, I've, you know, it's a form of ceramic. Fifteen years ago, as you say, there was the kind of Renzo piano follow-ons of kind of uh, lots of flat ceramics, I found them a little bit dull in a kind of panelised type way, pretending to be bricks that are modern. Uh, and you've done something very different with it in a number of buildings. Could you, maybe Eric, could you just tell us about an early one and then how it's developed from there? Yeah, yeah. well, there, I think there are two, two aspects. There's, this, there's the sculptural possibility of... Uh, of, because it's totally artificial material, effectively. I mean, it comes from the earth, but everything about it—it's—it's it's, you know—it's—it's it's potential to go wrong is always there in terms of like a firing of a of a piece of uh, ceramic. You know, at, at a studio level, it's always got that possibility to surprise you and to uh, and and to to. Uh, to to change, uh, it does. It's got a sort of metamorphosis um, through the process of, of casting, first of all. So one of the things that um, early on one discovers with that, thinking back to, to kind of pottery, is obviously that you can you can create very beautiful form that's then going to be enhanced uh, potentially either by the fact that it's glazed or unglazed. One is very absorbent. Uh, you know, and you can do the same with stone in terms of honing and polishing to certain stones in a certain way. But that capacity to control reflectivity is really important, and uh, within the range of scale, um, to 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 take from it certain things that are really uh, very characteristic. So in New Bond Street, that artificiality is taken to the to the knees. So that in, in the movement, uh, rather than at the joint, in, there is, a, there is, a, there is a, a process of sculptural change that catches the eye very, very nicely with, with light. So that's the difference between a cast piece of faience, as it were, and an extruded piece. So part of the boredom with extrusion is that it's, it is like aluminium. You know, you, you're putting the clay through a material uh, a die, and, and and it's just a length that is then cut in at certain uh, points. So that's the, the the business of working with ceramic as a sculpted form versus the extruded version is is one side, and then there are the glazes, um, because you know it is ultimately 
like glass, it has a certain... It can either be, you know, going to the first... Some of the first experience, Saarinen's General Motors headquarters outside Detroit, where the bricks were, um, were glazed. And that was, that was with a glaze that related to spark plugs, the glazes on spark plugs. You know, this is kind of... And it's a very simple glaze. It's just three colours that he used, or they used there. Um, so that's the next step, like the extruded versus the cast form. With glazes, you can have a simple glaze and you can control the re reflectivity, but you can then get in layering of glazes. And as soon as you get into layering of, of glazes, you get into a sort of capacity to dream into the material because you're working through uh, several levels. And there's the process, the thing about it is some, it's ambiguity and the capacity for, for the artificial to carry ambiguity in an interesting way when it's applied that I think gets to be fascinating about ceramics. And then, of course, how light moves over, uh, over a form, you know, which is so, so engaging. I remember, I remember coming to see your work at Savile Row, uh, which you did with Richard Deacon. Is it Savile Row? That's Eagle Place on Eagle Piccadilly. Place. Eagle yeah, Place. Piccadilly, yeah. And that kind of sense of the difference from different positions, and just, I mean, it's, a, it's just a remarkable piece, I think you can call that, as well as a building. Um, we should talk about uh, sustainability, particularly embodied carbon. I love the phrase about frugality. I think that's, that's a beautiful way of putting it. We need to be frugal. How can you be frugal when you're doing big buildings? Well, you know, I, it, is, it is, you could put it many ways, but, you know, that the business of, for instance, at King's Cross, when, when, when you've faced with the excitement going back to, to how you do this with industry, you know, of an idea, first of all, with an engineer, so it's a collaborative thought, uh, an idea about spanning or, or scale or the exoskeleton, or, because there are a series of those buildings, you know, in... Um, and, uh, you know, when you get to, to have a, a, a need for the structure to do its job and you, you end up with fantastic rivets or, you know, four inches of, of weathering steel in front of you, but you need that, it means that actually what you put behind it is not having to work quite as hard. You express sculpturally the steel. Um, or you express the stone. So on these are very tight budgets, after all. They, they are really... Actually, you know, any commercial building has a very tight budget, as you know. But if, if you... Uh, there is a frugality in that, that you express what you need, and you don't try and make the things that you don't need to be as expressive, try to do the work. So, you know, you get the, the, the cladding, the glazing, the envelope is behind the steel, and that will allow you to be more frugal with it. So, you 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 choose where 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 the uh, where the costs are, uh, in terms of some of those ambitions. It seems to me, and that does end up with a taut product, and uh, I think that that's where I mean, uh, you know, an appropriate use of material, and therefore costs that reflect, yeah, kind of a kind of tension that could be called. In a way, frugal necessity. Yeah, and I think you know longevity is the other one to just think about. If we are going to get 
buildings, you know, getting buildings to last. I think that that sort of cycle of, you know, building demolition and replacement is inherently an inefficient, um, frugal way of sort of dealing with things. So, you know, again, you look at King's Cross and with its weathering steel sort of exoskeleton, that's, that's going to last, you know, infinite amount of time, way beyond, uh, as I said, the 125 years we talked about earlier. So that's going to be that, that, and then the areas within that can adapt and change, but that structure can remain. So I think that's a very important point about longevity is one thing I'd say. The other thing is about kind of sourcing, you know, and increasing awareness of where materials come from and how they're produced is, is going to be a growing, you know, concern within the industry. It's very different to buying steel in France than buying steel in India because of the way the fabrication and the you know, the smelting process, etc., goes on and, and where that energy comes from. So I think we're going to have not just sort of singular conversations about whether stone might be an environmental material or steel. It's actually about which steel and where that comes from that, that sort of, that will think a new spin on it. And you think of the UK in particular with its sort of drive to wind energy, and I think we're doing very well on um, hitting some good benchmarks in terms of the quantity of um, renewable energy we're getting. Um, again, I think that that's going to play very well um, to what embodied carbon is ultimately in all of these materials. I mean, one interesting problem is that the kind of data that's around for embodied carbon that you can access at an early stage is quite um, general. Mm-hmm. And limited, yeah. So how do you go about, I mean, you have to think about that at an early stage, don't you? You have Because that's where those big decisions are made. How do you go about that? Does it change the way you work at all? I think it's something about proximity, isn't there? I think choosing things that, that can be sourced more, more locally or nationally is, is, is going to be a good idea because immediately you're taking out that transportation. Um, but I think it's, it's, it is a sort of bigger concern for the industry, getting that information, understanding how materials are, are produced ultimately and, and what are the sources behind that, the, the, the energy sources behind that to get you know, an energy rating. But I think it is difficult at the moment, it's worth recognising that there's not a green guide that says you know, what the embodied carbon of each and every material that goes into a building. Ultimately we will have that, but I think until that point, it's got to be about kind of one being judicious, as we say, about limiting the amount of resources we we use, but also um, selecting as local as we can that we can um, know where it's coming from and know how it's produced. So, just talking about budgets, and you you talk about the frugality of a commercial building, or the the costs of a commercial building not being so great. Uh, obviously, land values in London are pretty high, uh, but you've also worked in Birmingham and other places. Um, so there is a kind of sense that you, you know, there are, um, there is the value in your projects to make it worthwhile spending the money on innovating, on putting money into materials. Not every practice has that. Do you think that's a problem? Um. It seems to me that, that, that it's, it's a natural, uh, natural uh, position um, and probably, uh, you know, one... I think things, there's a rising and falling. As, we, as we're talking about uh, these things, you know, I, I'm, I'm 
very much reminded of people like uh, and Schumacher, um, Small is Beautiful, or, uh, you know, um, uh, maybe the work of other, other practices like uh, ARU, you know, uh, Florian Bagel and uh, Philip Christo and so on, you know, that um, actually it's been around this will to, 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 to get the most out of materials. It's been around a very long time, it seems to me, that, but it's re-emerged as an absolutely critical issue now, so it's a moral and ethical kind of position. And I think we all share that as practices, probably, ultimately. Yes, I think it's a wonderful... I, I'm often been sort of ruminating of, uh, you, you know, one of the best uses of... You think of, like, the early Georgian house, I think, is a great example of just being frugal and clever with materials. The, the early ones where they had mobile kilns that came to site, you know, digging out brick earth, and creating bricks on site where you, you build the house from the land it's on. And you think, you know, and there's that wonderful proportional play between one basement produces bricks for a kind of three-storey house approximately. And, and there's, there's a lot of clever plays in that. I think if you did that today, you built the building out of the earth that it was actually standing on, you, you'd be hailed as a genius. So I think there's lots of lessons to learn from the past. I think being frugal is has got sort of longer history than this very brief moment of history where there's perhaps been, been you know, too, too much of a kind of uh, overuse of things often. So um, I think in many ways we can look to good examples of history about how to do it. So just going forward, um, what's next? Is there another material that you're looking at at the moment? Uh, or is there, uh, are you playing around with anything differently on any of your projects? Yeah, I think um, I think absolutely. So, so not only that, it's the juxtaposition, juxtaposition of difference that's interesting. So, um, yeah, with the uh, Fleet Street project, Salisbury Court, you know, we have three materials effectively. On, um, on different buildings, That's interacting together. It's the courts, the police headquarters, and, uh, a, uh, and, a, uh, and a, a commercial building, office building. So, you know, that actually looking at how... Because I think that was part of uh, tuning in to... Um, you've mentioned Eagle Place on Piccadilly... Also New Bond Street, which, which has Hanoveria inside and, you know then a Victorian side, um, um, uh, and then uh, New Bond Street, you know, it's a collage of pieces that respond sectionally and materially to their context from brick to faience, uh, with, with real intention there that they should all be differentiated. And this sort of sense of, of drawing materials together at a, at a larger scale, um, uh, you know, with the uh, limestone, for instance, the quartz, the weathering steel of, of the police building uh, as, a, as a structure, and then, uh, and then unglazed uh, terracotta. That sort of um, sense of how the different materials work together, two and one, um, three, uh, uh, you know, three coming together in different ways, I think is, is very interesting. So something more complex in terms of the way the buildings speak to each other in, in dialogue in an urban situation. Um, 
but also I think going back to to that issue of uh, of uh, because a a commercial building like Finsbury Square is actually all about prefabrication. You know, it's about building it in a different way because you're building it level by level, but everything has to be has to be very well controlled in terms of prefabrication, and that's to do with program and so on. I think that's very interesting. Um, uh, so modularization and how you draw pieces together uh, as a jigsaw that can come uh, to create something within a, a larger framework of master planning um, and thinks very much about the things that Lee was referring to in terms of locality and, um, and, and resourcing. Uh, those, that, that sort of mix of, of materials through different buildings that can challenge the aluminium shed is something that I think is very intriguing at the moment. So something a bit more complex of, uh, of the assembly um, of pieces within a greater whole. Thank you very much. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lee. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to Van der Sanden for their support on this series of Reba J Meets.